Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Kept hammering, coming down even to the south and attacking the south. But then uh, God spared his people from the Assyrians. But then later on, God raises up the Babylonians. And they come and bring judgment from God upon his people. In uh, 586 B.C., Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And God's people, again, are carted off into exile, especially the brightest and the best were taken away. So as God's people are in exile in Babylon, they are going to have Isaiah's words in their ears and ringing in their ears. So that's kind of the context here that we see. And God, first of all, seems to be reminding his people of good things that he had done for them in the past. When you read that first line, verse 16 there, thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, what comes to mind? What Old Testament event that was in their past now would come to their minds, do you think? What, what, what um, image would be conjured up or what memory would be conjured up by God making a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. Crossing to the Red Sea, right? Where God, God's people are in Egypt and he remembers his people and brings them out of their captivity and their slavery and promises, remember, to bring them to a land. And, of course, the great miracle, the parting of the sea there, as it, he talks about a way in the sea. God makes a way in the sea for his people. When it looks like there's no way that, you know, their, their backs are up against the wall, so to speak, and the, the Egyptian armies are pursuing them, God makes a way. Uh, instructs Moses, parts the waters of the Red Sea, brings his people safely across on dry land, and then as the Egyptian armies go into that same dry ground, God brings the waters crashing down on them single-handedly, giving his people uh, both release and victory over the mighty Egyptians. So that certainly is conjured up in their minds with this first, with this first line of our text. And again, remember, they are in captivity in Babylon. So why would God want to conjure up that image for them while they're sitting there in captivity in Babylon? How, what, what effect would that have if, if God's people are caused to remember that he did this for them way back? Give them hope, right? Give them encouragement. He's not going to just leave them in Babylon. He's going to provide a way for them, so to speak, just as he provided a way for them when they were coming across uh, out of Egypt into the Red Sea. Now, uh, interesting, verse 17 is kind of interesting. Who, and this is still speaking uh, the Lord. The Lord is the referent here when it comes to the who that starts verse 17. Who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished like uh, quenched like a wick. Now here again, God is referring to the same historical event, bringing his people out of their captivity in Egypt. And remember, the Egyptian armies are pursuing in their chariots, their horses, their warriors are coming. But notice in verse 17, the thing that's interesting, at least to me, is that God 
asserts himself as the commander of that army. That's another way of saying that God is in control of the whole thing. You notice that? In verse 17, take a look at that. It says, who, that's the Lord again, brings forth chariot and horse. So God is in effect saying to his people, I'm the one who was in charge of that whole thing. Pharaoh might have thought he was, and by humanly speaking, by rank, I guess he was. But God's reminding his people, I was in charge of that whole thing. So again, what effect is that going to have on his people? Going to give them, again, hope and encouragement, right? That uh, Nebuchadnezzar may think he's in charge in Babylon, but who's really in charge? God is, right? And in fact, God has already predicted that he's going to raise up a ruler named Cyrus. The Persians are going to defeat the Babylonians in 539 B.C. So about uh, 50, roughly 50 years later after they're taken off. And a guy named Cyrus whom the prophet Jeremiah actually refers to. God refers to Cyrus in the book of Jeremiah as his shepherd, as God's shepherd. It's incredible that God would refer to a secular ruler of the Persians as his shepherd, which again demonstrates that God is in control and is, uh, you might say, steering this entire thing, this entire history of his people. And sure enough, 539, the Persians take over. Cyrus is the, uh, the ruler. One year later, 538, Cyrus issues the Edict of Cyrus, and allows, which allows God's people to come back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And so, again, we see when we read the Testament, we see that God is in control of nations, of rulers, of events, and he uses all of it for his own purposes. And I guess we might uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't point to the ultimate example of that. Can you think of an earthly ruler whom God used to accomplish his purposes for us today? It happened about 2,000 years ago, I'll give you a hint. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, right? Uh, Roman official, and uh, he's very reluctant to, to uh, you know, have Christ uh, crucified or sentenced to be executed, but he finally goes through with it. And there again, God is in the, the, the chief priest, scribes, and elders might have thought, we got him now, this is it, we won, and behind it all, God is at work to bring about again his, his purposes, his blessings for his people. Does that give us, what, is, what, what impact does that have on us today? As we think about the events of the world, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I watch the news, and I don't want to watch the news tonight, but I do, and you end up shaking your head at just some of the things going on around the world. And again, we got to remember what? That yes, there is sin in the world, and I'm not saying God is the author of sin, but even in the midst of evil and terrible things in the world, God is still at work. And that gives us a great deal of hope and encouragement okay and so this is what he's calling his people here by these first couple verses he he brings back images from when he delivered them from their slavery in Egypt
to give them again hope and encouragement that as they sit there in Babylon, they realize, hey, God did it before, he can do it again. In fact, he has promised to do it again, okay? Now comes the verse. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? Now, what sounds very strange that God says in verse 18 and actually flies in the face of things he has told his people elsewhere in the Old Testament? What was two words? Or, well, a little more than that, but big two words. Anybody got it? Remember not the former things. And in the, in the Old Testament, God is forever telling his people that they should remember these things. In fact, when he, when he uh, institutes the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, he tells them to do this and, uh, every year lest they forget what the Lord God has done for them. And throughout the Old Testament, we get this same kind of thing that God establishes festival after festival that they're to observe on an annual basis, lest they forget what God had done for them. And we today follow that same pattern, don't we? We have a liturgical calendar that goes around, and the, that calendar on an annual basis causes us to remember the mighty works of God and what he has done for his people and for us in years gone by. Well, this is kind of interesting then that here he says, remember not. And here, just one verse earlier, or two verses earlier, the, the, the two verses earlier, he's conjuring up images of what he did for them before. And now he's saying, remember not the things of old. I'm about to do something new. Any idea why God would say, remember not the things of old? What does he not want them to do? Okay, well, bad things, that could be, the, remember not the bad things of old. When you are constantly remembering and conjuring up the things of old, what does that sort of make you do? Living in the past, right, right, exactly. Um, and God is saying, God is not telling them here to have amnesia about everything he's done for them in the past. But it's the idea of not dwelling, not being paralyzed, you might say, by remembering just the things of the past. I'm going to do something new now, okay, which is delivering you from this place you are in Babylon. That's the first new thing, I guess you would say, he's going to be doing for them. Secondly, there's an incredible new thing he's going to be doing, and that's coming here in the person himself in the person of his son Jesus Christ dwelling amongst us bringing about the ultimate release from slavery to sin death and the devil and ultimately a, a huge new thing which they could not even have perceived of at that time and we're going to see it in the gospel lesson for next Sunday when we get to it he's going to be opening up the kingdom of God not just to Jews but to Gentiles what a new thing that is, right? So he's saying to them, don't be paralyzed by living in the past. I'm doing something new. Do you perceive it yet? Okay? Now, somebody's going to preach on this next week, but let's talk about this a little bit first. As 
congregations, do some congregations, I'm not talking about necessarily at all, I'm not talking about St. Paul's, about us here necessarily, St. Paul's is in church and the pair. Are there some congregations that simply in their lives are remembering the days of old and not looking ahead? Now again, I'm not, I'm not insinuating that that's us. I, don't think, I hope that's not us. But there are, isn't there a tendency as a congregation sometimes to say, boy, those were the good old days. I remember when Pastor so-and-so was here, and remember how, how many people we had in church, and remember the, how, how, the, how big everything was and how many kids we had in Sunday school, and we're living in the past, right? As if God is all done with us, and there's nothing new that he either can or will do for us. Uh, it's all kind of in the past. I'm not going to give away all my sermon material for next week yet. But also, as Christians, do we sometimes, are we tempted sometimes to be living in the past in terms of our Christian faith? Yeah. If we're not careful, we can slide into that too. Remembering the golden days, you know, uh, in the past. I mean, I grew up in the 50s and 60s as a kid, and that was the kind of the tail end of the baby boom. And I mean, and, and, and back at that time, going to church was the thing to do, you know? You weren't the only one backing out of your driveway on Sunday morning, like some of us maybe are today. And a lot of people look back on those years uh, as sort of the golden era, right, of, of the Christian church here, at least in this country. And if we're not careful, we kind of veer into this, that, oh, it's, it's never going to be that good again. Uh, those were the good old days, as if, again, God has nothing new to do for us, with us, through us. And uh, I hope and pray that as a congregation, we will never succumb to that, never, and always. Not, and I'm not saying that we don't acknowledge what God did for us in the past. That's important, too, that we do that. We have 170th anniversary this year here at St. Paul's, and we will be celebrating that. We will be observing that, not to bring glory to ourselves, but to bring glory to God and thanksgiving to God for what he did through those who came before us. But that's different from living in the past and not looking ahead to the future to see what God has in store and what he can do for us and through us, especially for others. So that's what God, that's the reason that God is saying here, contrary to what he says many places in the Old Testament, remember not the days of old. I, as he says here, behold, I am doing a new thing. Okay? Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? Okay? And what is this new thing? Uh, behold, I make, here again, a way in the wilderness. Now, again, what... Away in the wilderness, what would God's people think of when they were what? In the wilderness, right? Uh, for the 40 years, result of their own uh, disbelief. Uh, they're going to, again, they personally weren't, but their forefathers were in that, in that wilderness. So again, he's in effect telling them here, I'm doing something new. I'm going to make a way for you the 600 miles or so from Babylon. You're going to come back. And I'm doing something new here. Do you perceive it? Okay. 
And even in the wilderness, the, this release takes on cosmic uh, proportions, that the beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness. Gosh, when did that happen again? When they were in the wilderness before, right? Uh, water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Notice the way he talks to them. They're in exile because of their sin and their idolatry, but here he reassures them they are his chosen people. The people that, they are his people simply because he chose them. It's nothing that they did. It's nothing that was, uh, you know, meritorious or worthy on their part. He simply chose them. Any similarity to us? Exactly, right? Same thing. Nothing meritorious or, or good in us that he saw, that he said, boy, I, I better pick him, I better pick her. No, simply by grace. Chosen people. And verse 21, we almost get creation language here. The people whom I formed. That, that word can also be translated created or made. Okay, He made them a people. For, notice, not for themselves, but for myself that they might declare my praise. And we think of ourselves today as that same chosen people, not because we are Israelites. We are not. We are not. I don't think anybody here is of the 12 tribes uh, <laughs> that I'm aware of. Uh, but uh, we are chosen. And let me ask you this. Where did God, I, I, if you were listening the last time I preached here on the 17th, where did God set us apart or choose us? What, what event in our life? Baptism, right? Yeah. Uh, the Holy Spirit coming through water and word and calling us to be children of God. Okay? All right. So that is the Old Testament lesson for next Sunday. God speaking to his people through the prophet Isaiah, and they would be hearing these words in their ears as they are captives in Babylon. And it, it's, this is good news for them that God is going to make a way for them. He's doing something new. And do they perceive it? Okay? All right, let's stop here. Any questions, any comments on this? We'll be hearing a little bit more about this one next Sunday. All right, let's go on. I want to I hop over the epistle lesson for a moment and go to the gospel lesson on your sheet, which is Luke 20, verses 9 through 20. And here we have, just as we had this morning, if you were in church already this morning, we had... My, one of my favorite parables, uh, the so-called parable of the prodigal son, which, as uh, Vicar Wade pointed out in his sermon, is probably actually misnamed. It should be uh, the parable of the incredibly gracious father, really, uh, when you stop and think about it. Anyway, that's, that's today. Next week, we get another parable. And it's always, we'll talk about this, but it's always important. Whenever Jesus tells a parable, take a look at the context what has just happened or what has just been said, either by the disciples or by others, that, that causes Jesus to spring into telling a parable? He usually doesn't just do this out of the blue. There's something that has just happened. Somebody has said something. Somebody has done something that moves him to tell a parable. And we'll talk in a minute about what a parable is. Let's read through this, though, first of all. Uh, we're, for those at home, we're at Luke 20, and we're going to read verses 9 through 20. It goes on even a little bit after the parable. And he, that would be Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. 
A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he, do, he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. All right, that's the whole thing. Now, important to know a couple things. First of all, this takes place on Tuesday of Holy Week, okay? So Jesus has already entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to the cheering and, and hosannas of, of the people that greeted him there. Uh, and this is two days later now. And the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are after him. Right before this, they came to him, and he is teaching in the temple at this point, okay? So it's Tuesday of Holy Week. He's teaching in the temple, or temple grounds. And the chief priests, scribes, and elders come to him, and they start off by saying, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus responds rather uh, cleverly uh, by saying, I'll, I'll answer your question if you answer a question of mine. The baptism of John, was it from God or not? And he's got them at that point because they say, they think to themselves, and Luke even uh, records this, they think to themselves, if we say it's from God, then he's going to ask us, why didn't you believe it? And if we say it's not from God, the people are going to be upset because they followed him. So they, they couldn't answer it. And so Jesus says, neither will I answer you. And then this comes up, okay? Then he tells them this parable. So remember now, the hearers are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now, whenever you hear a parable or any talk about a vineyard, the people of God at that time would immediately think of one chapter in the book of Isaiah, and that's Isaiah chapter 5, where God speaks of his people as being a vineyard, okay? Now, I'm going to turn to it for just a minute. We won't take long on this, but this is, would be indelibly imprinted in their heads. Isaiah 5, for those of you who have a Bible here, let me just read this. 
Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard, God's vineyard. My beloved, that would be God, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. But he built a watchtower in the midst. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Okay? So God is the one, plants the vineyard, does everything he can for it, puts a hedge around it to protect it, puts a watchtower in the middle of it so they can keep watch over the uh, predators, uh, the ones who would come, both the two-legged and the four-legged predators, and eat the grapes. He's done everything he can do for the vineyard. It should, it should do nothing but produce fruit. Okay? And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So whenever you see Jesus talking about a vineyard, that's the kingdom of God. That's his people. There's another time he does it in Matthew 20. Remember, that's the one where they bring in the, the workers at the various hours of the day, and the ones who come in last get the whole day's pay. Well, again, vineyard is the kingdom of God, God's people, his church. Okay? We would say modern day, his church. Okay? So, let's go back to our parable here. Who is the owner of the vineyard? Let's figure out who the, who the uh, characters are here, so to speak, in this parable. Who's the owner of the vineyard? God is. Say God the Father, just plain God. Okay? Now, the important thing, who are the, uh, you might say, the people that he lent out, and, and the, the tenants, let's just say, the tenants, the people who are kind of uh, overseeing the vineyard in his absence. Pharisees, chief priests, scribes, elders, Pharisees, that whole group, okay? And now Jesus, in telling a parable, he didn't mention what a parable is, a, there's a, what I call a Sunday school definition of what a parable is. Anybody know that one? Earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that's, that's a fine definition. It's, it's a story that Jesus composes. It, it, Jesus is not reporting an historical event here. Okay? He is making up, you might say, a story. He's composing a story with earthly details. Things like a vineyard, tenants, grapes, and so on. But he's not, he's not doing this in order to teach some earthly uh, lesson like how to have a productive vineyard or something like that, he's doing it so that there's a spiritual or a heavenly meaning behind it. He's teaching something about life in the kingdom of God by telling this story, right? Now, this one is pretty pointed because his hearers here are, the, he's, he's conveying a, a message to them, okay? So let's back up just a little bit. Who do you think the servants are? There are three servants and, and I'm not, we don't have to identify them as particular by name, 
But who would have been the servants that God would have sent to his vineyard in order to get some return from that vineyard? And, and they were treated terribly. They were abused. They were beaten. They were uh, taken out, outside the city. Who, uh, prior to this, would God have sent prophets, the prophets in the Old Testament, exactly? And they were treated shamefully uh, by God's people. And so he's basically telling them, now, let me stop and think about this. Let's just think about this for a second. You send one, and he gets treated shamefully. You send a second one. Notice the violence escalates here with each one. It's an ascending scale of violence. After the second one, as the owner, what might you think to yourself? I don't know if this is such a good idea, <laughs> sending these guys. So he sends a third one. And it's even worse. Uh, now, three, three of them have been treated this way. And what is, to us, the illogical thing that the owner of the vineyard says and, and thinks to himself? I'll send my, notice, beloved son. Now, where have we heard that language before? To, uh, two places, right? Baptism of of Jesus by John the Baptist and Jordan River. And then we hear on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son, I guess it doesn't use beloved there, my chosen, listen to him. My chosen one, listen to him. So uh, Jesus is kind of laying it out here, isn't he? Remember, he's the one who's speaking this. He is the son. And what do they, what do they end up doing? These servants, they see him and they say, ha, this is the heir. And speaking in earthly terms now, this is the heir of the entire vineyard. We'll get rid of him, and then we'll get the vineyard, right? Possessions nine-tenths of the law. We're here. We're, we're renting it out. We'll get it. So what do they do, the, what do, they do to the, the son, the heir? Kill him. What has Jesus just predicted here? His own death, hasn't he? He has told them, in effect, I know what's going to happen. And, you know, you see this in other places as well. He tells his disciples, uh, more than one occasion, the Son of Man is going to go up to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests, scribes, and elders, be killed, and on the third day rise again. And, you know, this flies in the face of some people who might think, oh, you know, Jesus just got uh, taken, uh, 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 taken uh, advantage of, or, you know, things got out of control. He really couldn't handle what was going on. He was caught off guard. He was caught by surprise. He died on a cross, and that was it. Well, no. I mean, you look at, this is Tuesday of Holy Week, and even before that, he predicts to his disciples in, in great detail what's going to happen, and in other places it does as well. So again, this is days before it's going to happen. He knows what's coming, and he goes on, and, and is going to bring it to completion. Okay? Now, so he predicts that this is going to happen and that they, the tenants, are going to be the ones who are going to bring this about. And, and the funny thing is he makes them almost convict themselves here. And he, he stops and then he asks them the question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He makes them think, doesn't he, here? What would the owner, what, so from a human standpoint, what would the owner of a vineyard do to tenants who, who treated his servants and his son so shamefully? They, they, they'd be in huge trouble, right? He'd, he'd kick them out, if not worse. And it's interesting, if you read Matthew's account of this parable, 
the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders answer the question. And they say something like, he will kill those scoundrels. And then they stop and think about, uh-oh, <laughs> that's us. We just convicted ourselves. And so it's almost humorous in Matthew. Luke just has the words here um, that uh, he will come and destroy those tenants. And who, who is the others to whom the vineyard is going to be given? The, the kingdom, the church, we might say. He's going to give it to others, which logically makes sense in an earthly perspective. Now, when we talk about the church, though, who are the others to whom the church is going to be, the vineyard is going to be given? Gentiles. Uh, it's not just going to be, let's say it this way perhaps, it's not just going to be Jews any longer. It's going to be Jews and Gentiles. Those who are producing what? The fruit of repentance, which his people were not. As chief priests, scribes, and elders. I don't want to say nobody was, but chief priests, scribes, and elders in particular. Okay? And so what do you think their reaction is going to be to this? May it never be. It's translated rather, uh, it says it right before verse 17, they said, surely not. That's a very mild translation. This is one of the most, in uh, the Greek language, one of the most strong prohibitives that you can have. May it never, 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 never come to that is almost the way you could translate that. Uh, and so they are, they, they won't hear of this. They will not hear of this. This is their, this is their operation, and this guy from Nazareth is, gonna, is telling us that this is going to be taken away from us. Well, a couple, couple of ways that's going to happen. Uh, you're going to have the Gentiles uh, uh, coming uh, later on in the book of Acts. We see continually who is the uh, apostle, the last apostle called, who is commissioned specifically to go to Gentiles with the gospel. Paul, that's right, on the road to Damascus, right? Of all things, and we're going to, if we get to the epistle lesson, we're going to read about how Paul was a, uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee of Pharisees, and yet God sends him to the Gentiles. So that's going to happen. And another way that things are going to come crashing down is in 70 A.D., uh, you know, roughly 40 years uh, later, when the temple, uh, Jerusalem rather, is going to be destroyed again, this time by the Romans. And in a terrible, terrible siege, uh, the Roman general Titus and uh, Jerusalem will be destroyed again. And uh, they will uh, lose it all. Now, uh, they say, may it never be. And Jesus responds uh, in verse, uh, let's see, this is in verse 17 again. He looked directly at them. You can just feel the tension in the air here, can't you? This is not just some theoretical discussion. He looks directly at them. And in effect, what he is going to ask them here, oh, so are you saying Psalm 118 verse uh, 22 is not going to happen? Because that's what Jesus quotes there. And that's universally seen as a messianic psalm that predicts what's going to happen. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's a quote from Psalm 118 verse 22. The stone would be Jesus in this case, or the Messiah who is going to come, but Jesus in this case. Who are the builders who reject that stone? They're standing right in front of them, right? Chief priests, scribes, elders, those who reject him, has become the cornerstone. Now, 
We have, you know, when we build a building today, we have a nice cornerstone laying ceremony, and it's, it's nice. And the cornerstone, I don't think we think of as being too maybe important. Uh, it's more symbolic, I guess you would say. But back in Bible times, the cornerstone was extremely important. It literally was the stone in the corner was the first one that was laid and not only provided, you know, foundation, but also lined up the two walls that went out from it. Now, what happens if you get the cornerstone kind of crooked or uh, cattywampus, as they say? What's going to happen to the building? Whole building's off, right? Uh, off kilter. So the cornerstone was extremely important. So the stone that the builders rejected, and that word rejected in Greek means they to reject something after looking at it, after inspecting it. It's kind of like you hold it up and you say, eh, that's no good. So the stone, Jesus in this case, that the builders rejected and said, ah, he's no good, has become the cornerstone, the most important stone. How? Because of his death and resurrection. That's what he's here to do. That's his mission. Okay? Everyone, now verse 18 is sort of a judgment. Everyone who falls on that stone. How do you fall on a cornerstone when, uh, you know, it's, a way of, it's another way of looking at rejection. You trip over it, you know. It, it, and and uh, it's a, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Jesus, uh, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified a what? A stumbling block to Jews, right? And foolishness to Greeks. But to we who are being saved, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus was a stumbling block for the Jews. Why was he a stumbling block? He was crucified. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Plus, he was seen to be uh, not obeying the Sabbath day laws. His disciples weren't obeying the Sabbath day laws. He was just not doing the right things that they expected a, a Messiah to do. Okay? And so, uh, finally, uh, they, these, guys aren't, uh, these guys are a little perceptive. Uh, verse, uh, uh, let's see. Verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived he had told this parable against them. Yeah, very perceptive. That's exactly what he was doing. But they feared the people. So they, they wanted to take him right there on Tuesday. But again, the crowds were all around also, and they feared that they would be in trouble. They, they, they would it'd be a riot if, if they tried to take him away. So what are they going to do? Two days later, they're going to have Judas play right into their hands, right? He's going to come. And for the bargain of 30 pieces of silver at night on Thursday in the dark, he's going, to lead, he's going to lead them right to Jesus uh, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, up on the Mount of Olives. Okay? It's going to happen. Jesus knows it's coming. It's just not time yet. Okay? And so notice there, they, they, verse 20, they watched him. They sent spies who pretended. You know what the word uh, in Greek, the word for pretend there, hypocritos? We get the word hypocrite from, right? Somebody who's acting uh, as if there's something they're really not. And they're just trying to catch him is all they're trying to do. Okay? All right. So there's going to be something new. I'm trying to find the connection between this and the Old Testament lesson because usually those two are connected together. 
God is going to do something new, as he told his people in the Old Testament, ultimately here, with Christ dying, rising again, and there's the whole Gentile connection here that the people of God are not going to be restricted to Jews, but much as they wouldn't want to believe it, the Gentiles are coming in as well. Okay? All right, let me stop there before we go to the epistle lesson. Any comments, questions, observations? All right, let's go to the epistle lesson, which uh, I don't want to say has nothing to do with either of the two, but the epistle lessons are, unless it's a festival like Easter or Christmas or Reformation, usually the epistle lesson won't have, uh, is not chosen to echo the same theme as the Old Testament gospel lesson are. Philippians chapter 3, and let's read, read this through, and then we'll go back with the time we have left and kind of go through it. This is Paul now, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. This is a wonderful section, isn't it? I mean, we could spend a lot of time on this. Let's go back, though. In effect, you might say Paul starts off verses 4 through 6, really, of touting his credentials, you might say, that if anyone has reason to boast because of their earthly righteousness and holiness and blamelessness, I do. Now, that may sound rather conceited here. Uh, and, but we'll talk about this in just a second. But notice he lists his background here. So if anyone has confidence from an earthly perspective, I certainly do. And he goes down the list. Circumcised on the eighth day, following the command of Genesis 17, verse 2, where God commanded that his uh, circumcision for his people. And remember, Jesus, same thing, brought to the temple on the eighth day and circumcised. So Paul's saying, with regard to the law, I was, uh, well, I guess my parents followed that for me. Uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the young, uh, young son and one of only two tribes left after the 
uh, returned to Jerusalem along with the tribe of Judah, and they kind of almost merged as one at that point. Uh, and it was, that tribe was looked up to. They weren't the Samaritans who up in the north intermarried with the Assyrians. No, he's pure blood. Okay? And uh, notice there, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And there's two ways, and maybe this is an intentional double entendre here, double meaning. Two ways you can take that. First of all, Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning again, what I was just saying, sort of a pure blood. There's no uh, mixed blood in me. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. But also outwardly speaking, you know, I am a, you might say, I'm a true blue Lutheran, right? I, I observe all the, I come to midweek services and I observe all the, all the uh, customs, right? I, I don't miss a potluck and, and so on. Um, as to righteousness under the law, what's Paul saying? I am what? Perfect or blameless, yeah. In other words, I, all the laws. Now, was he really? No. But he's, he's laying up here his credentials. In other words, he at least, as far as the, the religiousness, religious, religiousosity, he was perfect. Uh, a Pharisee, the Pharisees were lay people. They were not clergy. Uh, and they had a, a vehement passion for keeping the law, especially the Sabbath day law. You know, the Pharisees actually, we beat up on them a lot. But the Pharisees began with a good intention. Uh, back when uh, the, there was a great deal of Greek uh, influence coming into uh, God's people and his church, including uh, pagan Greek influences, and the Pharisees wanted to keep that out, and they wanted to keep God's people pure. So in a way, they started with a good intention, but they carried it on to extraordinary lengths. And even to the point where thinking that just by, there was, there was a, a writing that if they, they felt that if all of God's people would keep one Sabbath day perfectly, that God would be so impressed he would send the Messiah. And the irony is, the Messiah was standing right in front of them, Right? And uh, God sent the Messiah in spite of the fact that they weren't keeping the Sabbath day perfectly, right? So, again, Paul's saying here, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. In other words, as a Jew, I was persecuting the Christian church, which he really was. When he was converted, he's on the way to Damascus to catch Christians, bring them back, and put them on trial, right? But notice there he says, um, uh, I, I counted... Uh, but whatever gain I had, verse 7, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he goes on, he repeats this two more times, and the last time he says it, I consider it, the translation is rubbish. Actually, that's the word uh, could and probably should be translated dung or manure. I consider all that stuff to be a loss, to be dung, in other words, all that notoriety that I had, all that religious stuff that I was doing, I consider it all to be loss when compared to knowing Christ, that I may know Christ and be found in him. Now, I'm not going to preach on this next Sunday, but if I were, what are some things today that people could say, these are my credentials, and they have to sort of 
isn't Paul saying here, it's a, it's a matter of priorities, right? That everything else goes down on the scale when compared to knowing Christ and being found in him. Now, what are some things today that people have to sort of, they may take a great deal of pride in, and if you talk to them, that's what they're going to tell you about maybe in their life. But there has to be a priority there, doesn't there? That all those things have to be considered by them, or should be considered by them, I should say, a loss compared to knowing Christ and being found in him. What would be some examples for modern-day people now, I'm seeing, that come under that, that kind of scrutiny? What's that? Helping people? Okay. Yeah, I help, help a lot of people. Okay. All right. Scott? Yeah, all your degrees, right? Look at all the letters I got behind my name, right? Take a great deal of pride in that. But again, it's a matter of priorities, isn't it? Is all that more important than knowing Christ and being found in him? Other things. Oh, yeah, okay, sort of the religious thing again, right? Just like the chief priests, scribes, and elders, I kind of said that jokingly before about, you know, I'm in church every Sunday. And so, now, again, I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't be in church, but we shouldn't be thinking that simply by showing up, that's, we can almost think of that as a good work and begin to think that merits me something from God just by doing that, right? So, yeah, that, that could be. I think there's a couple other things. There's, there's some obvious ones here, I think. How about your career, right? And you've advanced a great deal in your career. And do you consider that? How do, what's, what's the relationship between that on the priority scale and knowing Christ and being found in him, right? Uh, possessions of any sort? Again, what's, where does that fall on the, on the balance, okay? And Paul is saying here, I got, a, I got credentials like nobody else when it comes to a, a religious Jew, but I count it all loss, count it all as done compared to knowing Christ and being found in him. And so that's, that's a question, I guess, that you know, we ask ourselves as we go through life. And sometimes people make changes in their life as a result of that. Uh, not time for a quick story. But uh, <clears throat> there, I used to, some of you know I used to be uh, at, on the staff at Concordia Seminary here in St. Louis. And uh, I, don't, I think, well, it's a matter of public record. He wouldn't mind me saying this, I don't think. There, one of our students called me up one, uh, before he was a student, called me up and uh, said, this, he called me from the back of his back seat of his limousine, and this was before we had cell phones and all this, you know. And uh, he was the vice president of Nestle Corporation. And he calls me up and says, what would it take for me to be a pastor? And I, <laughs> after I picked myself up from the floor, I told him about the admission process. And, you know, he came and he visited. And sure enough, he enrolled uh, at SEM and served as a pastor. He's now retired. Uh, he served in Ohio as a pastor. And I remember talking to him one time. And he said he was concerned about his children and about their perspective that he saw in them when it came to the things of life. And he said, I'll never forget the one line he said is, if we stay in a holiday inn, it's like I'm asking them to camp out in a tent. And he was concerned about 
the perspective that his kids were having about the things of life. And again, so now I'm not saying that he became a pastor because of that, but he was starting to look at his life and the life, lives of his children and his family and was being concerned with, with that same kind of question. Where do these things fall in relationship to knowing Christ and being found in him? And he was, being, he was getting concerned uh, for his own family. And so sometimes people actually make changes in their life because they feel that these, whatever it is in their life has become such a priority that it's crowding out Christ in their life. And so again, I'm not, that's, a, that's a something for each, each one of us, I think, you know, in, as individuals, as families, uh, to be thinking about as, as we go through life, okay? Now, going on, uh, just a couple things here. Notice in verse, uh, well, it's verse, verse 9, uh, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. So here's, if we thought Paul was boasting before, you know, and saying I'm righteous in and of myself, here he clears it up. All he was doing before is saying if anybody should have confidence in what they had, I should have, but I don't. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. Notice it's a righteousness that comes from God and is given to us. That's a, a big theological term for that. That's called imputed righteousness. It comes from outside of us and is laid on us by God. He gives us our righteousness. Okay, We don't produce it ourselves. Uh, depends on faith. <clears throat> so it must be faith, and that's faith in Christ, as he has just said. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And uh, we've got to wrap this up. The, Paul talks in the coming verses about, I haven't attained this yet. That doesn't mean he's, he's saying to himself that, you know, gee, I don't have this yet. It's not, it's not going to happen. It's just that it hasn't happened yet for him. That's, that's all he's saying here. It's sort of the, I have it now, but it hasn't happened yet sort of thing, okay? So when Christ returns, I'm going to have the resurrection. He would never deny that. He read, you know, you read 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter is saying that. But he's, all he's saying is, I have it now, it is mine, but it hasn't happened yet. Okay, it's going to happen when Christ comes. And notice how he talks about pressing on. There's almost an athletic imagery here of pressing on and running the race that I might, you know, in effect, come across the finish line. Okay? And that, again, uh, that's one of the reasons we as Lutherans don't believe in a, in a theology that's called once saved, always saved, that it's impossible to fall away from the faith. It certainly is. And Paul says right here, he's, he's pressing on himself so that he may do that, may get there, okay? which implies there's a possibility that you may not. So anyway, he's not doubting his faith. He's not doubting any of it. He's saying it just hasn't happened yet. Okay? All right. So we will, by necessity, have to stop right there. Let's uh, close with the benediction then. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. All right. Thanks very much.